that's a good scripture reader right there. For those of you who don't know, that's my youngest son, Elliot. And uh, when I found out he was the scripture reader for this week, I thought, what, an, what a fitting person to read a story, to remind the father of what it would be like when God asks you to sacrifice your son. I mean, just think about that for a minute. What must it have been like for Abraham to go through this experience of having God come to him and say, I want you to take your son and offer him up? I can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine it. And yet that's exactly what the story says that we're looking at today. We're in the middle of a series called By Faith, and we're really just exploring during this series what it means for us as a people to actually cultivate a life of faith. And we think that this is really important for us in this day because God is actually inviting us as a church to position ourselves right in the heart of our community, even as we've already talked about in this service today. And we know when we get into the heart of our community that we could say of our community that it really is a community that in many ways is dead and it is decaying. And that's true because God's grace and truth and power is not at work in the ways that we would like to see it at work in many places in our community. And so we go into our community and it's like Ezekiel going into the valley of dry bones. And we say, Oh, it doesn't look like there's much life from God in some of these places that we might go into. And yet, we are called as a church to go right into those places and with radical hope in our hearts and souls believe that God can bring life even where death currently reigns. To believe that God could go into situations and circumstances that today do not reflect all that God would have for those places and to believe that God could resurrect them and take a valley of dry bones and make it an exceedingly great army. And in order to be that kind of church, we got to have faith. Amen? And so we need to cultivate faith in our lives today. And that's what we're talking about in this series. We started by talking about Noah. We said, by faith, Noah built an ark. And we talked about the fact that Noah has a relational faith. Right? Noah's faith was one that where he walked with God, he was able to hear God's voice in a culture that didn't honor God. And then as he walked with God and heard God's voice, he took God at his word and built an ark. Last week, we talked about Abraham, the first part of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, where we heard that God called Abram to leave what was familiar and certain and comfortable and go to a land that he was going to show him later. And Abraham, with destination unknown, decides to have an obedient faith and go where God has called him to go. This morning, we're going to talk about Abraham again because Abraham is actually mentioned twice in Hebrews chapter 11 in two distinct ways. He's mentioned the way we talked about last week, but then after God gives Abraham a son, he's mentioned again because God decides to test Abraham. And it's this test that we're going to look at today. 
All throughout this series, we've been starting in Hebrews 11, kind of finding the caption, and then going back to the Old Testament story. And just a little bit of backstory in Abraham's life. We know in Genesis chapter 12 that God calls Abraham to leave the land of his fathers and go to a new land. And Abraham obeys and goes, just like God's asked him to do. But along the way, it becomes clear that God wants to use Abraham to be the father of many nations. This is a problem for Abraham because he doesn't even have one kid. God says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of lots of people. And Abraham says, but I don't even have one. And God says, it's okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. Now, a little bit of time passes. By the way, Abraham is 75 years of age when the promise comes that he's going to be a dad. Just think about that for a minute. I'm in my mid-40s, and if I got the news I was going to be a dad, I would have a little freak-out moment, to be honest with you. I can't imagine what it would be like to be 75 and God saying, good news, Abraham, you're going to be a dad. But that's what Abraham gets at 75. Now, you might expect at 75 years and nine months, a baby comes. But that's not how it works. In fact, enough time passes that Abraham thinks he must have misheard. So he says to God, God, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, he says, God, uh, I don't have a child yet. So maybe what you meant is that Eliezer, my servant, will be the one through whom all of this is going to happen. In other words, Abraham believes the promise of God, but he's just trying to figure out a plan to make it work on his own. God comes back to Abraham and says, no, it's not your servant. In fact, Abraham, come outside. Look at the stars. If you could count the stars, Abraham, that's how many descendants you will have, and they'll be from your own bloodline. And Abraham believed the Lord, it says. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a verse that Paul will refer to many times in the New Testament. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So again, you'd think after this, nine months later, right? A baby's coming. Nope. Nope, more time's gonna advance. In fact, so much time that Sarah, Abraham's wife, says hey, Abraham, uh, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think God's actually going to give us a kid. So why don't you have a kid with my maid? And so Sarah gives her handmaid to Abraham, her husband. It's interesting that before when it was the servant, Abraham talked to God about it. In this instance, he doesn't talk to God at all. He just says, God, I know you've promised. I got a plan. I'll take care of it. And he has a child with his wife's maid. This is not the promised child. And God comes back to Abraham and says, no, Abraham, nice try, but you got it wrong. I really meant what I said. I am going to give you a child. It will be from your own bloodline, and it will be a son born to you and to Sarah. And through this child, you will become the father of many nations. And in fact, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. 
And at this time in Genesis chapter 18, now the promise is going to be fulfilled so that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 21, in fact, Abraham and Sarah have their own son and they name him Isaac. Now, I just want you to understand that when Isaac is born, Abraham is 100 years old, which is why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, and he was as good as dead. I mean, it actually says that in the book of Hebrews. Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old age, and it even says Abraham was as good as dead. 25 years he had to wait for the promise. 25 years. And then we come to Genesis 22, which if we're honest is perhaps one of the most perplexing and disturbing stories in all of the Bible. At least it perplexes me and disturbs me. I mean, I alluded to it earlier, but I was watching my son read the scripture this morning and thinking to myself, if God came to me today and said, take Elliot and sacrifice him on the altar, I might tap out of faith at that point. I'm not sure that I could obey God if God asked me to do that. And so the story in Genesis 22 is perplexing and it's disturbing that the God of Abraham would come and say, Abraham, sacrifice your only son to me. And if you're here in this room or you're watching online this morning, you're joining with us, thank you for being here. Thank you for gathering with us online. Maybe you just feel the tension of that reality in Genesis 22. I know I do. But here at Lakeview, we don't shy away from hard passages in the Bible. Because we believe all of the Bible is the word of God, and that in the scriptures, God reveals himself, not just in the easy passages, but the hard ones too. So we come to Genesis 22, and it's perplexing and it's disturbing. I want to walk through Genesis 22 for the next few minutes, and hopefully we'll see some things that will help us understand more about what it means to be people of faith. Is that okay? Are you with me? Beautiful. Genesis 22 begins with this statement. It's a statement that the writer of Hebrews references as well, that after all of these things that happened, all of those things that I just recounted, and now Abraham and Sarah have a son, after all of these things have happened, it says that God tested Abraham. I just want you to know that from time to time, God might test our faith. He might ask us to do things not because he needs us to do the thing he's asking us to do. Sometimes he might ask us to do something just because he wants to know if we really have faith in him. Sometimes he might ask us to take a risky step, like build an ark on dry land, and sometimes he might ask us to give up something that's deeply valued and immensely treasured because he wants to make sure that we're really in the game with him. And this reminds us that faith is not something we can just say that we have. Like, oh, I believe in God. I have faith. Sometimes God says, prove it. Sometimes God says, prove it. 
because he wants to know where we stand with him. And we must always remember that faith is always a verb. It's always an action. It's always a step that we take, right? It's not just something we say. It's something we do. So when God tests us, are we willing to follow through? That's what God does with Abraham. He comes and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Except God doesn't just say it that way. He kind of underscores how hard this will be for Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. God knows that this is something that Abraham deeply, deeply values and immensely treasures. And God wants Abraham to know that he knows. Sometimes God comes to us in our lives and asks us to give up things that we care deeply about, not because they're bad, but because God wants to make sure that we, in fact, have no other gods before him. It's what God does with Abraham. Now, again, I've already mentioned this, but if God asked me to do this, I don't know what I would say. I mean, I want to say the spiritual thing. I want to say, yeah, no problem. I would obey God and do whatever God asked me to do. But if I'm really honest, I don't know if I could. I mean, think about it. If you're a parent, think about it. I mean, it's easy to give the Sunday school spiritual answer, but if we're really honest, could we? Could we do this? Yet we see in Genesis 22, the next morning, Abraham's up early. He's got the donkey saddled. He's got the wood gathered. The fire's ready. The knife is packed away. He's got his son and his two servants, and off they go on a three-day journey. You want to talk about an awkward car ride? I mean, think about it. I mean, what do you talk about when you know that you're going to go kill your son? For three days, they traveled. Finally, the mountain comes into sight, and Abraham leaves his two servants takes his son, and they walk up the hill. Think about it. By this point, it's starting to dawn on Isaac that something's not right. We know this because he looks at his dad and he says, Dad, I see the wood, I see the fire, and I see the knife, but where is the sacrifice? And as a wise father, Abraham doesn't say, oh, son, you're the sacrifice. He just says, God will provide. I don't know if I'd have that kind of faith. God will provide. So they get up on the top of this mountain. Abraham quickly builds an altar 
lays his son out on the altar and now is prepared with a knife raised above his head, ready to plunge it into the beating chest of his son. And he has every intention of following through. In fact, we don't know. Maybe the knife even started to come down and then God says, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, Lord. And what does God say next? Now I know that you fear me. In other words, Abraham, you just passed the test. And at that moment, off in the thicket, there's a ram, and God has provided another sacrifice. Now, the fact that the story ends well doesn't make it any less perplexing or disturbing to me. It still bothers me, and it bothers me because I just keep thinking about this story, and I think about what kind of faith Abraham displays in this story. For example, I, I notice in Abraham's journey that he, he displays complete obedience without any hesitation. It's immediate. I kind of joked one time, I was talking to dads, and I, I was talking about this story, and I said... Uh, Maybe Isaac was a bad kid. And Abraham was just like, thank you, Lord. An answer to my problem. <laughs> Except that's not the reality at all. Abraham deeply loved Isaac. Treasured and valued him immensely. So when God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one that you love, the one you waited 25 years for, the one who is the gateway to every other promise God has made about your legacy that you're going to leave behind, Abraham, take that and sacrifice him on the altar. Abraham gets up early the next morning and goes. He doesn't wait. He doesn't go through a process of discernment. He heard the voice of God, and now he will obey without hesitation. I'm amazed at the faith of Abraham, not just because of his obedience, but because of his faith, his full faith in God's provision. I mean, it's absolute. There's no holding back. When Isaac says, hey, Dad, uh, one detail you forgot, where's the sacrifice? Abraham just points back to God. Oh, God will take care of it. And in Abraham's mind, he has to be thinking, maybe God has already provided the sacrifice in my son. And if not my son, he's already, he's going to provide a sacrifice some other way. He just believes God will provide. And then I'm amazed at the radical hope that he has in God's power. The writer of the book of Hebrews lets us in on a little secret that Abraham's got a thought process. And the thought process goes something like this. I'll sacrifice my son, but even if I do, and he ends up dying, God has enough power to bring him back to life. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. So Abraham is basically saying, I don't know why God is asking me to do this. I don't like that God's asking me to do this, but God knows what he's doing. And God will provide, and God will resolve this problem somehow, some way. 
That's faith. And I want that kind of faith. Don't you? Which leads me to this question. How can this kind of man have that kind of faith? How can this kind of man have that kind of faith? And the answer, I think, is found in a way that the scriptures actually talk about Abraham. In three places, it mentions him as a friend of God. A friend of God. In James chapter 2, it says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham was a friend of God. How could this kind of man have that kind of faith? He can have that kind of faith because it's not faith in a far off distant God who's just powerful, mighty, and strong. It's faith in a close, intimate friend who he knows so well. Think about it. You don't have faith in a stranger. But when your friend asks you for something hard, you have faith in a friend. And the closer the friend, the deeper the trust. I wanted to read you a little excerpt from a book called Letters to the Thirsty. This is, every once in a while you get a book and it just becomes a treasure for you. Some of you don't like to read and you're like, what nonsense is this man talking about right now? But I have, every once in a while, come across a book that just becomes a treasure. And this book is one of them. It's written by Edward Miller. It's called Letters to the Thirsty. And they're just short little chapters, one or two pages long, but they're written in letter format. Letters to people who are thirsty for more of God. And he writes a letter with Abraham as the subtext. And I want to read it to you because I think it's so helpful as we think about faith. Listen to what it says. Dear friend of God, thank you for your most recent correspondence. I was especially moved by your closing request. Pray that I would have the faith, surrender, and obedience of Abraham so that if God should request from me my heart's most treasured Isaac, I would be able to lay him gladly on the altar. Every earnest lover of the Lord Jesus has stood convicted at one time or another by the record of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. We put ourselves in Abraham's place and wondered how we would have responded if his test were ours. Usually we come up desperately short and cry out to the Lord to continue to work patiently with us. But Abraham had a secret. Three times the scripture assigned a title to him that uncovers the key to his faith, surrender, and obedience. Abraham was called the friend of God. A stranger did not test Abraham. Abraham's best friend did. Explore with me the organic union that binds friendship to faith, surrender, and obedience. Among strangers, faith is a struggle, but not among friends. It's easy and natural to trust a friend. The closer the friendship, the more intuitive the trust. When a friend makes a request, committing our trust to him is no strain. Our unbelief would be an insult. Even though we assured our friend we were doing our best to trust him. Abraham trusted God without struggle. Not because his faith was great, but because his friendship with God was great. 
Had a stranger requested the life of Isaac, Abraham would have resisted with all his strength. What is true of faith is also true of surrender and obedience. Abraham's willingness to yield depended on his intimate union with the Lord. Since his friend from heaven issued the command, obedience was as natural as breathing. I underscore this relationship between Abraham's friendship with the Lord and his offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah because I take your prayer request seriously. I pray not that God will increase your faith, but that you may cultivate a more intimate friendship with the Lord, for then faith will become automatic. I will pray not that you will be more fully surrendered, but that you'll more clearly see your true friend. Surrender is a byproduct of a relationship with God. So I pray not that you will obey him more fully, but that you'll know him more deeply. God's friends keep his commandments. I know you are earnest about this. I feel honored that you invited me to pray. If God answers my prayer, your eyes will be turned away from faith, surrender, and obedience. And unto the Lord himself. I'm convinced that as you walk in union with him, you'll receive the faith, surrender, and obedience for which you long. May Abraham's secret become ours. I got other stuff I want to share with you today, but I think that's a good enough stopping point. I'm going to invite the band to come, and as they're coming, let me just offer this challenge to you. You want to become a person of deeper faith? Build your friendship with God. That's going to require an investment in your life of time and prayer and listening to God. It's going to require you to open the scriptures and walk into that wonderful sanctuary that God has prepared for us in his word where we can encounter his presence and dwell with him and learn more about who he is and how he thinks. You want to become a person of faith today? Build your friendship with God. Build your friendship with God. Because learning to trust a stranger, well, that's really hard to do. But when you're trusting your friend. It becomes a whole lot more intuitive. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to come back and lead us in communion. For those of you who are joining us at home or wherever you find yourself today, if you have communion elements, crackers or bread and some juice, I would encourage you to gather those elements even while we're singing this song if you haven't already done so. And after we're done singing this song, I'm going to come back and walk us through this wonderful opportunity we have to receive the means of grace that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing, and then we'll come back and celebrate communion. God, thank you. Thank you for your word and your truth and your call upon our lives, not just to be people of faith who believe in a far-off, distant God who's mighty and powerful and strong, but God, the fact that you've called us to become your friends, to walk closely and intimately with you, and from that place of friendship, to be people of faith, surrender, and obedience.
So God, as we sing this song, may we find our hearts drawn closer to you because of the deep love that you as the Father have for us. Draw us close to you now, we pray in Jesus' name.